I'm going to invite you, though, to turn with me in your journal to page... Let me make sure I'm getting this right. Oh, let's go to page 29. You say, why 29? Well, 29 is actually our weekly blank page. We do a sort of your own notes and reflection page each week. It falls on the Saturday of each week. And the reason we're doing that tonight is because during the month of June, we are going to take time in Wednesdays, instead of doing sort of our group discussion where we break a passage down and talk through it, during this month, we're going to take part of our Mark teaching that I will not do on Sunday, and we're going to do it in here. So tonight, we're doing the passage immediately after this past Sunday's passage. And then we'll just kind of do ping-ponging back and forth through the month of June. So if you want to take notes, that's a page where you'll have some space to do it. The text that we'll be in tonight is Mark chapter 7. I have it up on the board. Mark chapter 7. And we'll be looking at verse 1 through 23. Now, as you're turning there... I want to give you sort of two verses that might be considered summary verses to this text. So Mark 7, 1 through 23, let me give you two verses that are sort of the summary text for the entire passage. The first one is verse 5. If you have your text open, I invite you to look at that with me. This is verse 5, and it says this. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus... Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And all the mamas who had little rugrats growing up say, Amen, amen, yes. We want clean hands. What was it that Benjamin Franklin used to say? Cleanliness is next to what? Oh, yeah, I'm in a church of Christ tonight. There you go. It is next to godliness. So there's your first little verse. Let me give you the other one, though. It's verse 18 through 20. Notice what Jesus says here. This is a response after his interaction with the Pharisees and scribes. He says to his followers, are you so dull? By the way, is that a compliment, church? Not so much. I mean, that's not a term of endearment. Oh, my little dummy. I love you so much. Uh, Not a good one. Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. Jump down verse 20. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. Tonight, if you want to write down a topic title, some of you like this, let me give you a little topic. This is very simply, the text title is Clean Hands, Dirty Hearts. Clean Hands, Dirty Hearts. A couple of years ago, when Lindsay and I were uh, in Nashville, we attended a parenting uh, sort of training time. And we received some really cool resources because if you, I mean, if you're new to the parenting thing, I, I don't know, there, there's a comedian I love, his name Jim Gaffigan, He's, he tends to be really clean and just a real funny guy, but he tells this story, he's like, he says, you want to know what it's like to have a fifth child? He goes, it's very simple, just imagine that you're drowning in the ocean and someone hands you a baby. He said, that's what it's like, you know, you just, it's like, I'm already drowning, I can't do this. So as a parent, you need the extra help, and, and so we, you know, we take it from anyone, and 
we received some great resources. One of the resources we received uh, were these cards. They were much smaller. I blew it up so you might be able to see it. These are age profile cards. And what it says is it's basically like a cheat sheet to the kind of child you have at a particular age. So as you know, as we grow, we have different wants, needs, questions, interests. And as a dumb parent, and I'll admit I was very stupid, I'm still not very smart, but as a parent who needed to learn a lot more, I, I mean, I'm like, okay, so this is where she's at. This was our daughter, Emma. And I love this. This is the three and four stage. And this is the stage where they just want to ask the question, Why? This is the stage that really calls into question and tests one's salvation, I have found. Because it's like, why, Daddy? Well, this is why. Well, why about that? Well, this is why. Well, why? After like the fifth or sixth why, I just get to the point where my, what my parents used to do, which is, because I said so. That's the reason. There is no more why. It's because I am the master of this house, and if you want to live in your room tonight, you will just agree with me. And then she cried, and that was the end of that. And so... Until he, you know, or new math. What's, what's wrong with old math? So, the why. But here's the thing that, that stood out to me. The threes and fours want to know this question. And every age has sort of a different focus, but this was the one that stood out to me. At this age, kids want to know, am I... I'm going to put it up on the board for you. Are you ready? Am I okay? Hey, am I okay as a human being? Am I okay the way that I am? They become self-aware. They begin to see a little bit that I'm a human. I'm sort of my own entity. Well, am I an okay human? am Am I good enough? Do I have sort of value? And they want to know, am I okay? And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know what? I don't think that this is simply an issue for three and four year olds. In fact, as I've been thinking a lot about it, I don't know that I've met anyone who has fully grown out of the stage where they ask the question, am I okay? Now, some of us get better at not worrying about it, or we kind of go, yeah, I'm okay, but haven't you had moments where even though you you think you're okay most of the time, something happens and you kind of go, man, am I okay? (laughs) Yeah, they say you're not okay, right, when they get to be teens. But I was thinking about it. I don't know that we ever outgrow the question, am I okay? In fact, the text we're going to look at tonight is really about, am I okay? Are you okay? And there's a lot of different ways that people answer the question, am I okay? You don't have to be a religious person. In fact, uh, if you consider the fact that there's about 2.3 billion Christians on planet Earth, that's out of over 7 billion people. That means that over 4 billion people are not asking the question, am I okay, and evaluating the answer the way you and I would answer it. But they're still asking the question, aren't they? And we create different measuring tools for determining, am I okay? So let's just kind of think through some of these. Some people will ask the question, am I okay? And they will come up with their, their ranking system, and their ranking system will be based on something like acquisition. 
I am okay if I get to a particular acquisition stage. That may mean financially at a certain stage. It may mean certain possessions. This is why certain, uh, you know, some people you and I both know, not just outside the church, but inside the church, they've always got to have the newest and the latest and the best because that's how they know they're okay. There's other people, it's not going to be acquisition, it might be status, and again, we could run through all these, but you think about it. How many people do you know that they find their value, their okayness, based on how high they go in the corporate ladder? That they don't care about the paycheck, they care about the status, they care about, am I well known? Or maybe there's other people, it's not, am I known well, but am I liked very well? Am I okay because other people like me? Just say you like me. Just please like me. And then there's other people. It's not a matter of acquisition or status. It's a matter of ability. So this is going to be physical prowess. Um, I work out most days of the week. I know that you can tell very easily by my mammoth stature. And, and so just please don't stare too much. But the reality is when I go in there, I do it just not to die. There are people, some who are in there because they look like Greek gods and they want to continue that way. They intimidate me, they make me feel like nothing of a man, but their status, their ability, their physical prowess, that's how they know they're somebody. Then there's other people, it's not a physical look, it's going to be a physical ability. So you think about people who pour all their time, their energy, their effort into a particular sport. Or maybe it's not that they themselves are putting their effort in. What about parents who find that they're okay by the ability of their kids? Have you ever met someone like that? Johnny hates baseball, but Johnny's good at baseball, so Johnny's going to play baseball until Johnny goes to the World Series and Daddy feels good. So you have different ways of answering the question, am I okay? Let's keep going. We then get into other people who say the way I know I'm okay is morality. And, and we see this sort of gauged differently in our culture, right? Different people have different views of morality. Did you know that politics is one of the main ways that people attempt to gauge their morality? You say, how is that possible? Politics is simply the way that a community of people organize and express their values into culture. Another way to put that, politics is the way that you allow your morality or the way you think life should be happen in public. And so you have people who vote on one side or the other, and they do it for reasons, and reasons that you may disagree with, but they do it because they believe it's a moral issue. And this is how I know I'm a good person, because I vote this way or I vote that way. And then there's others, maybe religiously, it's still a moral system. So for instance, uh, I have some very dear friends who are, uh, are Muslim. And, and they, we've had great conversations about this. And when we talk, I've said, well, how do you know that you're okay with, with Allah? You know, you believe in Allah. I don't believe in Allah, but, but you do. How do you know that you're okay? And they say, well, I have to do certain good things. I have to fulfill the five pillars of Islam, and I have to do the right things, not do the wrong things. I say, well, do you know then that you're okay? And they say, no, only, only Allah knows, and only Allah wills if I'm okay. I said, well, so how do you know? And they said, well, you find out when you die if you're okay. I'm like, well, that's kind of a rough place because you can't fix it if you're dead already. They said, yeah, so what you do is basically Allah will be there and he'll hold a a scale and he'll put all your good stuff and all your bad stuff. And I don't know if I've done enough good or or what. And and, and then I just find out then if I'm okay. Then there are other people. You've heard of those who believe in reincarnation, Right? 
The idea that when you die, you come back as something else. If you have been a good person, if this cosmic scale is better when you die, then you come back as something better than you are today. I'm looking forward to being a six foot two guy one day. It's going to be awesome. I'm being really good right now. And so for some, you do better, you get better. But if you do poorer, you come back as a lower being, maybe as a cow or a dog or a butterfly. This is how you know, and you don't know until you die. What about Christianity? Do we ever get into this? Well, it turns out that even the Hebrew people did this. They want to know, am I okay? And so that is the basis for this text. So let's kind of walk through it. I want to just take it verse by verse. By the way, I think I see most of you in here. I think most of us come all the time. But if you're a guest with us, you just need to know that we, we take books of the Bible and we just kind of read through it because we believe God's word is sufficient and we want to know all of it, not just the verses we kind of like. And so we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 7. Notice how it begins. The Pharisees... And some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. Now notice verse 3, it says, the Pharisees, and by the way, uh, I want you to pay attention to your text. Do you notice that there are uh, parentheses right there starting verse 3? I'll explain that in a moment. But notice it says, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, by the way, do some of you have a different word there instead of kettle? Copper pots, that's one. Does anyone? Copper vessel. What's that? Brazen vessels. There's also some of you older manuscripts, some of them actually, and if you have a King James or even a New King James, I believe will say dining furniture. Dining couches. How many of you have a dining couch that you need to ceremonially wash before you sit on it? Again, maybe you've had a guest that sat there and you're saying, Josh, you don't know who was sitting there. Of course, I ceremonially wash it with Windex, with bleach, and everything else. Okay, fine. But this is the picture of the ceremonial washing. They took it very, very seriously. Now, let's kind of get the context. First, we're told that the Pharisees came. Most of you know this, but let me just kind of walk us through this. The Pharisees were the hyper-religious group within Judaism. You had the very non-religious group called the Sadducees. You've heard about the Sadducees. Um, just different groups. The Pharisees, though, were hyper-religious, as were the scribes. We'll talk about them in a moment. Now, the Pharisees, just to give you a little bit of context, the Pharisees, their sect, their group began about four to 500 years earlier when Israel was in exile in Babylon. You remember we talked about Esther a few weeks back. When Israel was in Babylonian captivity, it was from that period that the Pharisees came about. You say, well, why did they come about then? Well, here's the reason. Israel had been taken into captivity because of her repeated unfaithfulness to God, idolatry, wicked behavior, intermingling in sinful practices with other nations. And so God, as a good father, finally said, I've had enough. And he basically paddled his children, Israel, with a nation coming against them. 
They're brought into captivity. And the Israelites realize their mistake. And they go, oh no, it's because we were impure, because we were intermingling, because we were not holy, that we found ourselves in captivity. And so there's a group of people who said, we want to be the set-apart ones. We want to be holy. In fact, the word Pharisee simply means set-apart ones or separate ones. So these were the people who took God's law very, very seriously because they wanted to be separate, set-apart for the purposes of God. So they were not the bad guys originally. They were ones who took very seriously doing what God wanted. Now, there's another group that we hear. These are called the scribes. The scribes, or the teachers of the law, were simply the ones who would read the Scriptures, interpret the Scriptures, write down those interpretations, and teach them. Basically, they were the scholars or the preachers of their day. In fact, they began around that same period as well. The very first scribe that we know of is in your Old Testament. His name is Ezra. He was the first scribe. Interestingly enough, though, what they began to do is as they would read Scripture, they began to realize there were some laws that God gave that did not have a lot of explanation around them. So, for instance, the fourth commandment is, you shall keep the Sabbath day, right? But what does that mean? Well, it says don't work. But, but what is work exactly? So they began to say, we need to figure out a way of not breaking the law. After all, we want to be the set-apart ones. We want to be holy like God, not like the nations. Consequently, if that is who we are, we've got to know exactly what it takes to be okay. So they would get together, and the process went something like this. They would read the text. They would begin to debate what it meant. They would then begin to write down rules and regulations that they believed would help either for them to live it out better or to express it better to others. After they began to practice it, they would pass it on orally, generation to generation. They then wrote it down. These writings were called the Talmud, and they were collected in volumes called the Mishnah. And the whole idea was we want to make sure we do it right. The problem was, over time, what once was maybe a good idea they elevated it to become a God idea. It is equal, they began to think, as with sacred scripture. You don't know anyone who's ever done that, do you? With tradition? We call it holy, holy, yeah. So we do some of this as well. Now, what happened is they began to put all of these things into practice and they began to lay on others, not as an option, but as an obligation, these very practices. So, for, for instance here, this is such a big deal that we're told that they came from Jerusalem, notice this, to see Jesus in Gennesaret. Let me give you kind of a context here. Do you guys remember, here's sort of our map. Here's water, Mediterranean Sea. You have the Jordan River, you have the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Gennesaret or uh, Sea of Tiberias, and then you go further down, this is the Jordan River, then you get to the Jordan River, excuse me, not the Jordan River, to the Dead Sea. Up here, the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and his friends, do you remember from Sunday, left from right here 
And they were going by boat over here, but the storm, the wind pushed them off course. Do you remember all this? Jesus comes, meets them out on the water, and the boat gets pushed further until they come to a region. It was about three miles wide, about a mile and a half deep, on the west-hand side of the Sea of Galilee called Gennesaret. This is in your, should be in your book on page 5. And so Jesus begins to heal people and love on people and help people. But down here in Jerusalem are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they hear that Jesus is up in Gennesaret, and so they send a delegation of their leaders to go talk to Jesus. Here's the thing. It's a 90-mile hike from here to here. Now, here's the question. If you traveled by foot, most likely, 90 miles, to see Jesus, and you could ask him one question, What question would you want to ask Jesus? Would it be about ceremonial washing of your hands? No. So this was such a big deal to them that they are going to ask Jesus. Of all the questions they can ask him, they're going to walk 90 miles to say, are we okay? Thing is, they don't ask it as a question because they already think they've got the answer. We're okay. Why aren't you guys okay? They're not washing. They're not keeping their hands clean. And so there were different rules. For instance, let me just give you a few of these, how this became such a burden. It talks about in verse, uh, it says, talks about unwashed hands. Um, This was, again, ritual. The way that they would do this, and this starts in Leviticus, Old Testament. The law originally of washing hands was not for everyone in Israel. It was for the priests, And it wasn't for when they were just doing anything. It's when they were going into the tabernacle and then in later years into the temple or before they did their work before the Lord. That's when they bathed or washed. It was symbolic of becoming clean before going before God. But by the time we get to Jesus' day, it is not just for a select few doing one thing. They said it had to be for all people doing everything. It became a burden. And the way that they would wash, just for those of you who are curious, they would get water, they would have their arm down, and they would pour the pitcher of water from elbows to their tips of fingers. Then they would lift their hands, and they would pour water from their tips down to their elbows. And now, like a doctor going into surgery, you were considered clean. But... They didn't just say it was for when you ate. In fact, do you notice the parentheses here? And this, you say, why the parentheses? Mark is writing primarily to Gentile or Greek people. They don't know all the customs of the Jews. So Mark's giving little explanation for what's going on here. And so he explains that this was such a big deal that they would not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Why is that? Well, if you go to the marketplace, you might bump into Gentiles, and you know they're going to hell. You don't want to get hell on your hands. So you go home and wash first. And not only that, they had all sorts of requirements and responsibilities. Do you notice that little phrase, the tradition of the elders? This is a clarifying phrase, meaning this is not of God, this is of man. In the scriptures, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses a distinguishing phrase when describing the difference between God's law and man's law. Whenever Jesus talks about God's law, for instance, in Matthew chapter 4, when he's being tempted by the enemy, 
he always begins before saying something from Scripture with the words, it is written. This is his way of saying, God says. But in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about one's behavior, for instance, when he says, talking about lust and adultery, he says not, it is written, but he says, you have heard it said. This is man's words, not God's. So when you see that, Jesus is distinguishing between God's and man's rules. So some of the man's rules, some of you might find this fascinating. I find this stuff infinitely fun because I'm a nerd, so we'll just kind of go with it here. But for instance, what they would do uh, when they cleaned the pots, they had over 30 chapters on how to clean a pot and a pan correctly. Ladies, how would you enjoy that? Husbands, if you're like me and you get put to work in the kitchen, how would you like that? Mm -mm. When it came to Sabbath keeping, they had 24 chapters on how not to break the Sabbath. Three of my favorite rules were you could not carry anything heavier on the Sabbath than a fig. But you could carry something that was half the weight of a fig twice on the Sabbath. So I wonder, do they have little fig weights, you know, all over this town? So you kind of, nope, can't pick that up. Okay, we're good. We can walk. Uh, Let me give you two more. On the Sabbath, they said you could not take a bath on the Sabbath. Do you want to know why you could not take a bath on the Sabbath? Because when you get out of the bath, you would most likely drip water on the floor and you would be accused of working on the Sabbath because you were washing the floor. Or how about this little gem? On the Sabbath, you could not spit on the ground. Why? Because you might be accused of cultivating the ground. Come on, seed, grow. And that was what they thought. And so what was once God's law, very simple, look, rest, refresh, be encouraged, enjoy the gift of a day, off became a burden. And it was all to say, I'm okay. How about you? And Jesus says, this, this won't work. So notice what happens now in verse 6 and following. Jesus says, Isaiah. Now, now, who's Isaiah? Do you know who Isaiah is, church? He's a prophet, one of the, the great prophets of old. He says, Isaiah the prophet was right when he prophesied about who? You. You. He's talking. And Jesus is saying, look, Hundreds of years ago, about 700 years ago, this guy by the name of Isaiah, when he was prophesying, he wasn't just doing it willy-nilly. He's talking about you. And it's not just you, people, you, Pharisees, you, law keepers. It's you, what's that word? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Have you ever heard this word hypocrite before? How many of us have heard people who don't know a thing about the Bible, but they know that word from the Bible? You hypocrites. The word hypocrite comes from the Greek word hypocrite, which is an actor who would wear a mask to play a part on stage. And you say, well, so, so does this mean you've got to be perfect to not be a hypocrite? No, you can be as imperfect as you want to be. You just can't say you're perfect and be imperfect. These were people who claimed perfection while living anything but perfect lives. And so Jesus says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites as it is written. Oh, wait, what's that phrase? Uh, 
as it is written. Do you notice Jesus is quoting Scripture now, not opinions? He quotes, These people honor me with their what? Their lips. External. So, so I'm okay with my external ability. I'm okay with my external status. I'm okay with my external acquisition, external morality, external behavior, external political party, external, external. That's how I'm okay. But Jesus says, these people honor me with their externals, with their lips, but their internals, their hearts are far from me. They worship me in, what's that word? Vain, meaning it's worthless. You're doing all this striving and working and trying, and it ain't getting you anywhere. Here's the picture. Someone who's doing something in vain. How many of you have ever seen a hamster in one of those little cages? And that little ball that they get in? And there's... That is a picture of someone who's trying to please God in vain. They work hard, but they ain't getting anywhere. You try in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And Jesus then says, verse 8, you have let go of the commands of whom? Of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. So he's saying, you think that your traditions make you okay while in the very same breath you are disavowing and disrespecting and disregarding, I'm trying to think of another dis word, God's law. He says, and that doesn't work. So here's what he ends up doing. He starts giving an example of this. He says, and you've heard them say, now, oh, oh, and he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, and now he's going to give an example of this. So he's going to say that you have chosen your traditions. By the way, are traditions bad, church? No. Hey, by the way, what time do we meet on Wednesday nights? That's a tradition, isn't it? I'm glad we have traditions. If we just said, hey, we're going to meet sometime in the middle of next week, good luck. How would you know when we're supposed to be here? There's a tradition. Is there anything wrong with tradition on their own? No, no. We need to remember the place of traditions, though. And he says, let me give you an example. He said, the Bible says, or for Moses said, and of course Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, so Moses, speaking on behalf of God, said, Honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, all right, you guys are holding on to tradition because you think that's what makes you okay, when in fact, because you have elevated this over God's word, it is making you anything but okay. And he says, here's the example. The Bible says, honor your mom and daddy. Do that, do that. By the way, the way we show honor to our parents, one of the ways is if they have a need and we have the ability to meet that need, we choose to do so. That is a way to show honor. 
He says, but what you've done is you have come to find through the traditions of men a loophole so as not to help mom and dad. They came up with this word, this idea called korban. It just means to dedicate something. That's all it means. And so because of their tradition, they said, here's what you can do. You can dedicate something that you own. Maybe it's land, maybe it's money, maybe it's livestock, whatever it is. You can dedicate it and say, this is korban. It is dedicated to God, meaning I can't use it for anything other than for God's purposes. So your mom and dad come, they've had a hard year, crops have not come in, dad's sick, mom is not doing well, whatever the issue, they say, we need some help, and you go, oh, I'm so sorry, I'd really like to help you. But you see, because I'm so spiritual, I've made everything Corbin, and I can't now help you. And Jesus says, you've made a tradition that by keeping that tradition, you are breaking the very law of God. Does this make sense what Jesus is saying? Now, I'm not going to ask you to think, uh, to, to say anything on this, but have you ever known of churches, maybe not Churches of Christ, or maybe, where we have come up with traditions that keep us from doing what God has actually called us to do? Or churches that have become so very traditional or tradition-centric that they suck the very joy out of the gifts of God, our very own versions of Sabbath-keeping. I remember when my dad, when I was a little boy, we, we used to, I, I, I love swimming. I'm terrible at it. I, I look like, anyway, I won't go into that. It's embarrassing. I love swimming, though. And I remember when we were real little, we used to get a, go swimming out at like public beaches and stuff and, and, and swimming pools. But once I got to like a certain age, I remember my parents, and, and my parents are world-class Dad's my best bud. Mom's my, my, my sweet mom. I just we love hanging out. We're going to be with him next week at the beach, so things have gotten better. But when I was a certain age, I remember hormones were raging, and Mom and Dad said, hey, we're just not going to go to the beach anymore because we don't do mixed bathing once you hit a certain stage. And I went, wait a minute, hold on. What is mixed bathing? I thought we were just going to go swim. What, I mean, it, and then I thought about it. I was like, you know, that doesn't sound half bad. We should try that whole mixed bathing thing sometime. But what happened, there were certain rules, there were certain things. So, so, and it was all based on the desire to keep their son pure. I applaud the heart behind it. There are many things we might say, there are traditions that we elevate. By the way, I think that was a pretty good choice my parents made when I was that age. I'm grateful for it. But there are some things that we elevate to a God level thinking that makes us more holy, more set apart. It says we are okay when in fact we may become so focused on the tradition we forget the purpose behind it. Can I show you something real fast? I want to give you a picture here. In the churches that I'm accustomed and and familiar with, we have a we, we get kind of confused sometimes when it comes to terms. Can I give you some terms tonight? I just kind of want to put a pause here because this plays into what we're going to talk about over the next just couple minutes here. So here's the thing. When we talk about church, we often, well, churches of Christ. We were known as people of the book. Did you ever hear that phrase growing up, people of the book? Maybe that was just a Nashville thing. All right. So one of the things we heard, though, growing up is that we are people of the book, And the idea is simply that we value the scriptures, that we knew the Bible, we wanted to know the Bible. Didn't mean we had it right all the time by any means, but just meant that we valued it and we wanted to know it. 
When we talk about church or we talk about what we do, we often use different words. So you'll hear about, someone might say, well, that church is a traditional church or a conservative church or a progressive church or a liberal church. Have you ever heard any of those terms, any, any of us? Okay, I, I've heard those, and they're not bad terms. They're all fine terms. The problem is we confuse what they mean, and sometimes I'm afraid miss out on what God is trying to teach us. And this, so for a moment, pretend I'm not even talking about us. Let's just talk about the Pharisees for a moment here. Can we do that? The Pharisees, if you were to look at sort of a spectrum, you might call it this sort of spectrum. You've got the traditional side, and you've got the progressive side. And all this talks about is you know, what they like to do. This is a values thing. So this would be preferences. So traditional means you just like tradition, right? I love tradition, by the way. There are certain things that I value because it just is near and dear. There are some songs, and when I begin to hear them in church, I mean, I feel like a six-year-old kid again. My heart just kind of goes, yes, I love it. And so there are some things. I like tradition sometimes. Anyone in here like tradition at all? Okay, good. You're my people. Okay, very good. Okay. So this is just evaluating the tradition, something that is in the past. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? No. Progressive means that you just like progress, right? You like something new. By the way, I like new things too. I was talking just a moment ago in here to Clint because he has an Apple Watch. They're pretty cool. I like progress. By the way, we are in a progressive church. You want to know how I know we're in a progressive church? We have air conditioning in this building. They didn't have it in the first century. That's progress, amen? Anyone else glad for that one? All right, so there's also progressive. So you've got traditional, you've got progressive. Now, the Pharisees were traditional, and that's not bad. They were traditional because they liked the traditions, and they trusted that the traditions would help them stay, hear me now, two different words, under the authority of Scripture. Now, Sometimes when we talk about these terms, we'll use the two other ones, conservative and liberal. I'm not talking politics right now, okay? So just flush that idea. That's not the point. Historically, when we talk about a conservative or a liberal religious person, what we're talking about is a liberal religious person is someone who some, to some degree picks and chooses what in the Bible they will choose to believe and agree with. So, for instance, historically, a true liberal would be someone who denies the divinity of Jesus or the virgin birth or the resurrection. Those would be examples. And this is someone who, is, who stands above the authority of Scripture. They are over Scripture. So Scripture is good, but they are the ultimate authority. They're on top. Does that make sense so far? Historically, though, a conservative Christian, and again, these are, not, uh, th- these are not political terms we're using here, completely different use of words there. But a conservative Christian, conserva, I'm telling you, whoever comes up with a spell check board is going to make millions. A conservative Christian is simply someone who says, I come under the authority of Scripture. That even when I see something I don't like in the Bible, I change my thinking, my speaking, my behavior instead of telling the Bible to change what it's saying. We are under the authority of Scripture. Does does this make sense so far? Now, here's why I say all this. Now, pay attention because I think this is huge. 
Is tradition bad? Is progress, la la, is progress bad? No, okay. Did you know you can have traditional conservatives and traditional liberals? You can also have progressive conservatives and progressive liberals. How do you know the difference? Here's the difference. A traditional, actually, let's start over here. A progressive conservative, someone who says, boy, I like new stuff. It's fun. Gets me excited. New songs in church. Oh, yeah, Paul, you lead us in a new song. I got that. Oh, this is so good. I think it's great. I'm excited. Oh, a PowerPoint slideshow. Outstanding. Although I still kind of miss the, you know, overhead lay. The, you know, the person gets it upside down and they're all, you know, just a moment. Or how many, how many of you remember when the missionaries would come with their slides in the little carousel and they'd click the button and it'd be upside down or something? And then they have to go fishing through all of them. Anyway, okay. Progress. A progressive conservative is someone who says, I like progress, but if I see something that I'm interested in doing, the Bible does not allow, I won't do that because the Bible is my authority. So you come under or you submit to Scripture. A progressive liberal is someone who says, man, I'm so excited about what we're doing and I want to do this so much that even if I see something in Scripture that says I shouldn't, I'm still doing it, meaning my progress is elevated above Scripture. Does this make sense? The same is true for tradition, isn't it? I love tradition and I'm going to hold on to those things that are good But if the Bible says that my tradition is wrong in some way, I would rather give up that one tradition and come under the authority of Scripture than hold my tradition as the Pharisees and be disobedient to God. Does this make sense? But if you say my tradition is more important than the truth of God's Word, then what are are we? Now, this is the situation that Jesus is dealing with, and the issue is all about, am I okay? And they said, it's going to be the tradition that saves us. That's how I know I'm okay. And he says, you have just given up the word of God to do your tradition. He says, but here's the good news. Are you ready for some good news in my last two minutes that we have way too much to cover? Here we go. He says this. After all this, again, Jesus called the crowd to him, verse 14, and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Everyone say nothing. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. I love this. They're they're probably in the crowd going, "Mm, amen, Jesus, Mm, that's that's right. And then they get behind them. They're like, we have no idea what you're talking about. Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. Notice this parenthesis. In saying this, Jesus declared all food clean. In my margin, I write the words, thank God for bacon. (laughs) Yeah. So he says, it's not the hands, but it's the heart that makes you okay. Not what comes in from the outside. Now, by the way, can what we do on the outside influence our hearts? Oh, absolutely. I mean, read the Sermon on the Mount. You'll get all that just fine from Jesus. But his point is justification, being just before God, is not about greater activity on the outside and figuring it out and doing this way. It's your heart. 
He says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And here he goes and gives a list. What comes out from a man is what makes him unclean. And he gives a list. For from within, out of a man's heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So what do we do with this? Here we go. Clean hands, but if you have a dirty heart, not okay. What do we do? What do we do? There's this beautiful little passage. Hebrews chapter 10. And if we had time, we'd read through it. But there's one little verse, verse 22, where we're promised that because of the faithfulness of God, we can approach him. And that he has sprinkled our hearts. He has washed us. That cleansing, and we know this intellectually, but here's the thing. I know way too many people who've been with the Lord for decades, but they still wonder, am I okay? And the promise is, it's not what you're doing, but what he has done that makes you okay. You say, well, then what is all this about hands and what we do? Here, here it is. This weekend I was at a wedding. My wife's cousin got married, Abby, sweet young lady. She married this great young man named Parker. And as part of the wedding, the minister made this statement. He said, on such and such day, Parker asked Abby for her hand in marriage. And I thought about it. I thought, everyone's kind of going, oh, and I'm going, that's a weird phrase. What does that even mean? May I have your hand? Thanks. I mean, what does it mean? It means... To give oneself to another. To give one's hand is to give oneself to another, correct? It's just a symbolic way of saying, I'm giving you my life. I have never met a bride or a bride-to-be who offered her hand, her external, to her groom without first giving him her heart. Hands Follow the heart. And here's the beautiful thing. The promise of Scripture is that because God loves you so much, He gave you His heart. And then on a cross, He demonstrated it with what? His hands. The question we started with this morning that little three and four-year-olds ask is, am I okay? Listen, that is not a bad question so long as you are asking the right person. You ask me or anyone else, you're going to get different kinds of answers, but you go to your daddy God and you say, daddy, am I okay? And he says, oh, child, I gave you my hands. I gave you, you are okay because I love you and you are are mine. And so he says, I just want your heart back. We'll figure out the hands as we go along. And that's how you know you're okay. So let's pray and thank him for making us okay. Father, I thank you for these moments when we get to reaffirm that because of Jesus that we get to be okay. I'm so grateful that you don't evaluate our okayness by what we do, but by what Jesus has done for us. 
Father, I do thank you that as we love you and lean into you and we find the beauty of who you are, we then want to give our hands to you as we've given you our heart. Please take our hearts this week, captivate us with your goodness, compel us closer to you, and in the moments when we ask, am I okay, would you remind us from the good words from Scripture, as it is written, you have sprinkled our hearts clean. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good week.